0: listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. We help you build a thriving, creative career. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. You can stay up to date with all things creative pep talk by following me on Instagram at Andy J. Pizza. Let's jump into today's episode. This episode is supported by In the Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express Hey friends, in this episode I'm going to share 6 things that I learned from my creative heroes that completely changed my direction. These ideas all come from online talks that you can find at creativepeptalk.com/episodes. Let's get into it. The first idea that I got is get angry. And I'm gonna explain what that means in a second, but it came from a talk that I watched with Max Timken, the founder of Cards Against Humanity. And you might say, Andy, I didn't think your heroes would be someone who invented Cards Against Humanity. And you're right. I started this first one with a little bit of a, it's like a trick question, trick answer. Like, he's not necessarily an enemy of me, but he is doing work in the world that is very different to the type of work in the world that I want to be doing. And, you know, he's very flippant, and uh, he's got a touch of nihilism. He's super funny. Um, But the thing of the – he said something in the talk, and what he said is kind of irrelevant. But the point of it is it made me angry, what he said. And that anger is part of what birthed this podcast. And I saw Austin Kleon had wrote an article recently about a negative approach. And Austin Cleon's another example of somebody who has a lot of, at least on the surface, seemingly contrary beliefs to me about creativity and, and creative career. And so... Uh, in this article, Austin talks about Mary Mingley, the philosopher, and how she said that when she felt like she had said everything she could possibly say, some idiot comes out of the, out of the woodwork with some idea that infuriates her, and all of a sudden she's got a million new things to say. This also, this theme of anger showed up on the Creative Processing podcast with Joseph Gordon-Levitt in his interview with Ryan Johnson, and Ryan Johnson was talking about every movie he's made has come from a place of anger. And initially, as you know, because I'm such a happy guy who likes unicorns and strawberries, I'm like, anger—that doesn't seem very nice. Um, but but I started thinking about. Whether it was true for me and uh, and what I could learn from this, you know, challenging belief, and I realized that it's really true. And here's why I think it is. Here's why Max Timkins' talk, in which he said something that kind of made me mad, turned into so much creative fuel. And I think it gets to the heart of what anger is. When I worked at the youth shelter detention center in my early twenties they were constantly educating you about how to deescalate a teen that's kind of gone off the deep end and is in full-blown anger uh, attack. And, And one of the things they said was that anger is a secondary emotion, that there's always something under anger. There's pain. There's hurt. There's someone who hasn't been seen. There's some. There's a frustration that has become, or there's a basic need that has become so uh, intense that it's bubbling over. That it has to. Be, it can't be contained any longer. And it's like steam coming out of the teapot. Like steam is the anger, but there's something boiling down inside that's bubbling out spilling over into reality that can't be held back anymore. And so the truth is, anger is one of the best breadcrumbs for finding your deepest held emotions that you can't help but let come out. And that's the place you want to create from. That kind of visceral uh, tank of energy, there is so much resource there internally for you to create from. And so when you get angry, if you're struggling on knowing what to make, think about what am I mad about? That happens to me. There's so many episodes of this podcast that come from being frustrated with when I see a creative that's believing a lie that is sabotaging their success. And I said but it the same is true for Anything that I create, any story I want to tell, anger is a fantastic breadcrumb, so get angry. Number two is defy cliche, and this comes from my man Aaron Draplin. Now, when I watched this talk, it was his Creative Mornings talk as well, I remember going to lunch with my friend Matt right after I'd seen the talk, and my friend Matt was like, why do you have such a ridiculous, goofy smile on your face? Like you're exploding with positivity and and joy. And I was like, I can't really explain it, but I just watched this talk with this guy, Aaron Draplin. I'd never never come across this person before, and I am just uh, euphoric almost. And I didn't realize it at the time. But I think the reason why Draplin makes me so happy and also why he has had such an explosive effect on the design world is because he defies cliché. And I want to explain why that's so comforting and why it's so central to your creative success. So... When I was in eighth grade, I met Matt Langworthy. <laughs> Shout out to Matt Langworthy. A different Matt. I'm seeing how that's kind of confusing. Uh, from the earlier, I mentioned a different Matt. Matt Rust. These are two different Mats in my life. There's a lot of Mats in the world. Okay, I can't, I can't help you with that. But Matt Langworthy, when I was in eighth grade, and he was a huge football player, who loved In Sync, and I didn't understand at the time, but I realized like that is the coolest thing. Like At the time, that ironic kind of like, I, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't cool at the time to be a football player that liked NSYNC. He got made fun of all the time. But what was cool is that he did it with so much self-actualized confidence. And I think the same thing is happening with Draplin. Is that the thing about Draplin is he has this Midwest blue collar uh, work ethic to design that's that's not precious, that's not fancy, that's down to earth, and yet that same burly, uh, you know, seemingly masculine energy on the on the stage can instantly go from that to crying about the stars or crying about his dad or just sharing his heart and his passion with humor and self-deprecation and passion. And there's this there's just this something that happens when a when a burly guy gets up there and shouts at you one second and cries with you the next. And I think that if you want to create a niche, if you want to stand out in your creative career, you can have to be unafraid of defying cliche. Yes, you need to go find your people. You need to go find your tribe. You need to go find who are the people like you that you wanna resonate with. But you you have to be unafraid to call out the parts of that group that you find unhealthy or unappealing because that breaks off this market into a particular niche and all of a sudden you're giving voice to a whole group of people that has felt silenced. I think one of the things about Draplin that so resonates with people is that for the longest time, design has felt like a New York thing. And even though Draplin lives in Portland, he came from Michigan. And I think he gave license and he gave Uh, uh, he he justified a whole group, a whole side of the country that had been ignored by the industry. And so again, he defied the cliche of what design is supposed to be about. And so ask yourself, what are the ways that you're just, you know, are you just talking crap about Tahoma and Comic Sans because that's what designers do? Are you just, you know, towing the party line? Are you just... Up, keeping up the status quo? What are the ways that you don't fit in? And until you're unafraid to share those and own those, you will blend into the crowd. And I've said this a million times and I'll say it a million more. What do you call an artist that doesn't wanna stand out? I don't know, but you don't call him an artist. So thanks, Draplin, for teaching me how to stand out. Number three, this is a TED Talk by Nancy Duarte, and the idea that had this huge impact on me is you are not the hero. Nancy Duarte is a public speaking expert. She's got one of the biggest TED Talks of all time. You should definitely watch this if you're doing any public speaking. Uh, There's some really great advice about how to think about what makes a great talk. And so I love that talk for that reason, Um, kind of meta. But here's her big idea in that talk is that you are not the hero. When you're on stage, it's easy to be overcome by your ego because you've got all these people looking at you. And it's easy to position yourself in that moment as the hero in the room. But if you do that, the audience will shut off because whether you like it or not, whether you, whether it, uh, I don't know, rubs against your worldview or something, every person experiences their life as the hero of their story. They can't help it. They're the main character. They're in every scene, right? So, uh, but I think that the people that go to the next level, are the people that, even though they're in every scene, realize that their purpose in life isn't to be the hero, but to be the guide. You are meant to be Obi-Wan and not Luke. You are meant to be Yoda. You are meant to be Dumbledore. You are meant to be Morpheus. You are meant to be Maui. You are not meant to be the hero. Now, even the hero, I feel like this is a, uh, this is a peculiar thing to wrap your head around, but every hero is also a guide. And I believe that if you lean into being a guide as a creative person, I believe this applies to every single business out there. Zig Ziglar is famous for saying you can have everything you want. If you help enough people get what they want. And I feel like in that very simple statement, it sounds very, uh, I don't know, pyramid (laughs) uh, scheme-ish, but the truth is that is the definition that's the best, most simple explanation of what not only business is, but what our purpose on this planet is. And I don't mean, look, actually I do mean, I'm arguing with myself, I do mean on a spiritual, cosmic, deep level, but you don't have to buy into that. You can just take it at surface level, just take it in pure science and evolution. We are social animals. We exist for each other. We are inextricable. We are one. You might as well think of humanity as a body. And you are just a cell. And yet so many creative people talk about how I just do my art just for me. It's just for me. Which by the way, for some reason we celebrate that. We never celebrate that in every, any other area, in every other area of life, we call that selfish. Now, I think if you isolate anything into black or white, it's either for you or for them, you're all automatically wrong. I think the truth comes in a nuanced narrative of seasonal thinking is that it's not, it's either for you or them. It's. It might be for you at the start. That might be the right place to plant the seed, but that's not where the harvest is. And this whole idea shifted my complete approach to not only the things like the podcast, which are obvious, but my creative work. And so if you if you were a cell in the body and you said, you know, this function with the endoplasmic reticulum where I'm pushing the proteins around my cell that's just for me i just just do that for me it's not for the other cells it's not for the body it's just just me time baby look even that instead of just saying that's the opposite of you're not the hero i'm gonna push up against that instead of just doing the obvious thing lean into it and say you know what yeah there's a bunch of functions that the cell does that are seemingly just for them But it's just like being on the plane where you've got to put the air mask on first. That's what self-care is all about. To me, self-care is about we are social animals and for you to be the best for your tribe, for you to be the best for the other uh, cells in the body, you do have to take care of yourself. And the same goes for your creative work is that your creative output is not for you, but it needs to start there. And that's why my whole worldview, what I think we're doing on this planet, if you wanna understand what's the secret of the universe, I think it goes back to the golden rule, do unto others as you want done to you. And I believe that's the secret of a successful creative career. Because here's the thing, do unto others, it's not about you, that's what that's saying. However, that second part tells you exactly how to do that in the most powerful, authentic way do unto others as you want done to you. There is so much brilliance in that phrase. That's about leaning into your own creative intuition, into your own taste. It's saying, make the movie for others that you wish was made for you. Make the t-shirt for others that you wish was made for you. There is, that's, there's so much power in that. For me, I've been thinking about how you know, creativity, I feel like a lot of times we overcomplicate originality and innovation and breakthrough. When I think, I like to look at comedy and cooking as the primary creative activities. To me, that's the height of creativity. And it's kind of the simplicity of it that I find so much inspiration. So with cooking, here's how I think of it. You ever, I, I imagine a chef has a dish, It blows their freaking socks off. And they say, you know what? That was amazing. But this little side part, this little veggie medley, that should be the whole damn dish. We should expand that thing. Let that be the superstar. Because to me, that's the tastiest thing on this menu. And it just gets this, it's playing a bit part to the meat. So they open this vegetarian restaurant where they let vegetables shine. And the same goes for me watching He Man growing up. There's a character named Orko. He's got like, he's kind of like a magical character that floats. Uh, and he's got, you cannot, can't see his face. It's in the shadows. You know, that's my jam. And while I'm watching the show, I'm just like, why can't they all be like this character? Like, why can't they all be a little bit invisible? Like, I don't like this. I don't like, He-Man looks like a weirdo, just it's so strange, like a weird Skeletor, this other hairy guy. It's a very strange show, and I'm just like, Orko's got it going on. And that's why I made Invisible Things, I wanted every character to have that mysterious quality. I wanted that bit part to be the hero of my uh, creativity. And so that taste of doing unto others as I want done to me, that is where the secret sauce is. And I think if you... If your practice is divorced from the idea that we are social animals, you will not be fulfilled. Viktor Frankl talks about how if you wake up every day and you know that if you don't get up, if you don't get out of bed, people on this planet will miss out on something that's important to them. It will give you a sense of fulfillment and meaning. And if you don't have that in your creative work, you will lack fulfillment and meaning and i'm gonna die on this hill okay like i i think that uh for every per every artist i hear it all the time i hear it all the freaking time but this is my podcast now and i can say whatever i want and so you listen up to me <laughs> listen i'm getting angry which we heard in st- step one is a br- breadcrumb to to your truth um <laughs> uh, that uh that you know pushing those proteins around the endoplasmic reticulum. That's just for me. I I hope it is for you. I hope it's just for you so that you can be the best cell you can be so that the body thrives. And when you find that place in the greater story of humanity, I think it's going to unlock some really phenomenal creative work in you. Number four comes from Frank Camaro. The idea that he taught me is this. In his talk, Shape of Design, which, by the way, this talk, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It shaped me in maybe more than any other thing on this list. And the thing I learned from Frank is don't be afraid to try. Is that honestly, honestly, Creative work, so many of us, I think, ran to creative work, myself included, because it was a place of non judgment. I was told there's no such thing as good art and bad art. It's subjective. Subjective is like a warm blanket of protection, is that nobody can say whether I'm good or bad because I'm making art. I hate sports. And I hate sports because I'm incredibly competitive and I suck at them. So I can't enjoy it because I am so bad. And I think I ran from things like math and sports because I'm so competitive that I couldn't take the judgment and failure. And so I ran into something like creative work where nobody can judge me. But then as soon as you start making, trying to make a living on your creative work, all of a sudden, things get objective real quick, right? And I always think about it, you know, I always go back to my masters, my teachers, the comedians and the chefs. Yeah, there's no such thing as, you know, uh, good food and bad food. Wrong, right? Right? That breaks down real quick when you eat some raw chicken and you spend half the wedding puking your guts out in the outside toilets. Happened to me. But <laughs> now I'm very serious about cooking temperatures of chicken. Um, <laughs> but it's true, right? Like that subjectivity has its limits. And I think that uh, if you want to have a career in this, if I asked you today what does success look like for your creative work? What is the definition of good? What's good? We've talked about this on the show a lot. But if I asked you today, I'm asking you again because I guarantee you, nine out of 10 of you, there's 10 people that listen to this show, nine of you, uh, Gary's the only one that can define what's good. I've asked him. Sharon, I've not, I'm not... I'm not asking you again. Well, final time. What's good? If I said, what, if I said to you, if you're comedian, it's obviously super easy. What's good to you? Laughs. Bigger, more frequent laughs equals good. If you're an illustrator, what is your target? For me, my target is an aha moment. It's an it's a It's a switching – it's a flipping of a switch, if you will. Switching of a flip. (laughs) And I uh, – this idea that when it clicks with them, that it would – that they would – my ultimate is they make a sound. And I – in my illustrations, whether they're pictures or words, like often I've – when I'm on stage and I'm giving you a metaphor or an analogy, what I'm looking for is an an audible – some kind of mm, like some kind of audible thing that says you felt it you felt a neuropathway birth in your brain that's what i'm going for that's the definition of good cuz that means i illuminated a topic which is the is the is the potential of illustration and so if i asked you and if you if i asked you and you start rambling a list of buzzwords. I'm going to slap you in the face metaphorically. I'm not going to be actually violent. But the, but if, you, if I say, what's the purpose of design? And you say, well, it's to uh, alleviate the extremities of the pot. I'm like, shut up. Tell me the truth. When a customer, a person interacts with your stuff, what do they get out of it? If you don't have a sense of the value of what you do and you have a target to to reach for and practice on and improve on time after time after time, you are not going to objectively improve. And if you're not objectively improving, you cannot be in business. You have to keep that art to yourself. It's your personal diary. It's just for you. That little thing that you're making, it's just for you. If you can't explain what's good about it, what is it supposed, what's that shooting for? What's it striving for? And you can't be afraid to shoot for something. In Frank's talk, it's all about defining what is design. What is good design? In that talk, I was at a low place when I saw this talk. I was I was in a, it was early in my career and I was trying to figure out how to start the engine again because I wasn't getting any jobs. And it was that talk that inspired me to say, I to first ask a very difficult question. What is illustration? I wanna be, if I'm gonna spend my life doing this, I wanna be the best. Maybe I won't be the best at illustration like the Michael Jordan of illustration, but maybe I could be the best at rebounds, like Dennis Rodman. What, What? I need to be the best at my particular flavor of illustration. If I'm gonna be the best, I gotta know what the best is. How do I define it? And it gave me the courage to say, I'm going to actually attempt to be good. I'm not going to hide under the warm, safe blanket of subjectivity anymore. I'm going to start putting in the discipline and the reps and the struggle to actually be great at my thing. And I can't do that if I don't define what it is. If I asked you what is great music, what is great art? What is great film? You better have an answer next time I see you. Now, (laughs) this is the angry episode. Um, Salty pizza is what my uh, agent Ryan calls it. Um, Getting salty. But but I'm serious. What's your definition of good? And how are you showing up to target practice day after day after day, gathering feedback, that's the thing about this relationship between the artist and their audience. You don't have to ask the audience for ideas. You need to listen to them, but you can decide whatever you want to do with what you hear from them, whatever feedback they are, whatever, whatever feedback they give you. And you need, to get that, you need to get in that arena day after day after day because their response to what you do is your target. And you need to know what you're looking for so you can start measuring it and you can start improving on your practice. The longer you put this off, the longer your creative house is gonna be on a foundation of sand. When things get rough, when things get shaky, when a recession hits, your house is gonna come crumbling down if you don't build it on actual objective truth. If And, and, and don't be afraid to start in Dark places. We're gonna to get to that in a second, but this idea that don't be afraid. If I said, what do people get out of your work? If the answer is it makes them feel cool, like literally they like your art because they feel cool wearing your art or engaging with your art or following you or them repre- you representing who they are as a person. Start there and then ask why. Why does cool matter? Well, they want an identity they can be proud of. Okay, now you're getting somewhere interesting. Like how do you create, how do you lean better into that? What does it look like when that's successful? What does it look like when you've missed the mark totally? Thank you, Frank, for inspiring me to not be afraid to try. Number five is from Jad Abumrod. The founder of Radio Lab, the radio show and podcast. And the thing that I learned from him was to say yes to the call, AKA embrace gut churn. So, gut churn, he talks about this in the talk. And it's this idea of when you're in the creative process and everything feels wrong, everything feels like a struggle, and your gut is churning. Like you just feel sick to your stomach because you're so it's you feel so far off, and that he's learned and that science backs up that that is a key stage. A key stage is approaching the problem head on, wrestling with it, struggling with it, and that that if you're feeling that way, you're doing it. Before I had heard this talk, I'd actually written a blog post about. If you're, in, if you're engaging in a creative practice where you're feeling miserable and you're wrestling and you feel ill-equipped, that you should go find a different creative outlet that is more in your wheelhouse, that's something that feels more natural to you. And it was because I was designing these t-shirts for a brand that needed concepts and I would go through this process and just rack my brain and bang my head up against the wall. And it took me so long and it was so hard to come up with these concepts that I thought this has not worked for me. Like I should not be going through this struggle and this inner turmoil. I should not be going through gut churn. That's not creativity, right? Wrong. And that's what this talk with Jad is all about is embracing that wrestling, that struggle, the stakes like, I love this idea because it's one of the bricks in the wall in my mind, the foundation of the growth mindset. If you've listened to this show very much, you've heard me talk about it a lot. I'm probably going to do a whole episode on it again soon. I haven't done one since episode 71. Uh, but uh, the growth mindset is, you know, statistically speaking, the most common attribute of successful people. The growth mindset says it's an attitude that says, I can get better, I can grow my intelligence, my skills, my talents, my abilities. They all have potential for dramatic growth. And if you have that idea, when you approach a challenge, you're not defeated, you're excited because that's where it gets good. When you feel gut churn and it's getting like it's getting challenging, you're inspired because you know you're doing it. You're about to break through. You're about to grow. But if you have the fixed mindset, if you have the attitude that uh, it's either a talent that you have or you don't have, as soon as it gets challenging, you get fearful because if you fail, if you can't design this t-shirt this time, then you don't have what it takes. And if what it takes is some innate thing that you either have or you don't. Failure is game over. You, need to, you have to give up and pack it in because you don't have it. And so I've been thinking a lot about this because the talk that I'm doing on my tour is all about the, the hero's journey. It's all about side quests you know, I've come up with this framework. It's a it's kind of an adaptation of my creative career path and my side quest series, and it's this framework for understanding the seasons of a journey of creative success. It's knowing the different phases, the different parts of where you are on your creative path, identifying them and leading into the struggle of each individual part and learning to see that as something life affirming and life giving. Why I do that? Why I'm so why do you hear me talk about the hero's journey nearly every week? The reason is is because I have learned that framing struggle and pain and challenge in my creative process as part of the journey as part of a story as what makes a story good is the high stakes i look back to early andy who had never had any successes and had no idea if he had what it took whatsoever only to find out later that what it takes is actually attempting to have what it takes going through the process but i look back and i see him in all of this turmoil because he hasn't learned that the this gut churn this feeling of there's something at risk. That's what makes this game interesting. And when you don't have that, it's called boredom. When you're at a job where all you got to do is just push a button over and over and over again, and you have all the belief in the world that you have what it takes to do that indefinitely, that's what, that's hell. That's the lack of meaning. What makes it meaningful is I have to show up with my full self to this thing. And when I started to find out about the hero's journey early on in my early 20s, again, it was one of the first bricks in the foundation of my growth mindset because the hero's journey has several phases that are about struggles. There are dragons, there are enemies, there are challenges on the road to get what you ultimately need to save the village. And so... This talk, this idea of gut churn was another one of those pieces to the puzzle for me of leaning in, reframing how you see struggle, how you see struggle and challenge will be the battle that your creative career succeeds or fails on. Your ability to reframe obstacles is the key to your success. And before I'd encountered the hero's journey and embraced gut churn, as soon as I would hit an obstacle or I would hit challenge, I would assume that I'd taken a wrong turn. But what you find with the hero's journey is that it's the obstacles that are designed to turn you into the person that can slay the dragon at the end of the path. They are the key. And so if you can approach, you know, the ways that you have to think creatively to break into your industry or the new market that you want to be a part of, the, the ways that you have to strategically get around those gatekeepers are going to teach you the skills necessary to do great work within that market. Those obstacles They're not set up arbitrarily for the most part. They're set up to be barriers of entry so that people that can do the work are the ones on the inside. And so those obstacles stopping you, those people stopping you from doing the work that you want to be doing, they're your teachers. So embrace gut churn. When you find challenge, realize it's not a dead end, but it's a call to a new adventure. Say yes. Six, the final idea is face your shadow and it comes from Joseph Wu. Joseph Wu did a talk in the early 2010s where he talked about getting diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. Now, ever since i was a young teen i had suspicioned suspicioned doesn't have a <laughs> there's no verb how do you be subs- i was i was very suspicious but i want i don't want to be suspicious that's a noun i had some s- suspicion i had suspicion that, that i was adhd that i had Something different going on with me, and uh, and I never really did much about it. I never really looked into it. I think that there was a part of me that thought if I owned that, that it would be some kind of excuse. That if I if I that and that it was just an excuse. That I was just saying I can't really be a normal successful human because I've got something wrong with me. And I watched that talk. And I watched him look at his shadow side, the part of himself that he had tried to hide and stared straight at it. And I watched him go through that process in this talk of grieving and accepting and moving not away from, but through this diagnosis. And it was the first time that I'd ever talked to my doctor seriously about my suspicions And I do think at first it was difficult to own that I have ADHD and that my brain's different and that no matter how hard I try, I will not be like other people. Things that come natural and easy to other people will never come easy and natural to me. And at first that was a hurdle, that was a problem. But eventually that embracing of truth of who I am led to me being more integrated, more fulfilled, and ultimately more successful with less effort. I have this picture, you know, before I leaned into the truth about me and my ADHD, my inbox was a freaking mess. My email inbox was a freaking mess. And the funny thing is, that's not different at all today (laughs) but how I feel about it and how I deal with it is dramatically different you see I I get about as much email done today as I did before I knew I had ADHD but the difference is how I feel about it and how I deal with it now let me explain that to you real quick so before I owned having ADHD, I just had so much shame about the way that I dealt with email. And I would just shame myself, feel terrible all the time, and not improve whatsoever on my email. Now, what happened is after I realized I am never going to be good at email, it doesn't. And I quit shaming myself. And what I realized is without the shame, I got the same amount done. So I felt better and uh, I was putting in the same level of effort and getting the same success. On top of that, I started to ask real questions that made actual progress. If I'm never going to get better at this email, if it's always going to be a burden for me, how do I outsource that? It influenced the agents that I chose to represent me as an illustrator because I realized I don't need an agent to go get me work and market my work because that's what I do, I know how to do that. I need someone who has more qualities of a manager. It's the reason why Ryan is my manager is because he's one part agent, one part manager. And although I'm just as bad at email as I've ever been, I have someone to offset that weakness so that I can lean into my actual strengths. And I never would have done that had I not gone into the cave of my shadow side. Joseph Campbell says, the treasure you seek is hiding in the cave that you fear to enter. What are the things about yourself that you've been repressing and pretending aren't true, not accepting the reality of who you are that's not changing? those shadows that seem like they're holding your curse, if you will move through them and integrate them into who you are, you will find your biggest breakthroughs. Now, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but you've had plenty of time to watch Enter the Spider-Verse. <laughs> and if you haven't watched it, go watch it. It is a, a cartoon, it's animated, but it's probably the best superhero movie of all time, and I'm not alone in saying that it is just a phenom. It's just written so well; it's it just works. But I want to tell you something that's a little bit of a spoiler, but maybe not. Um, it's not. I'm not going to be super explicit about it. That Spider-Man. One of the things that happens to Miles Morales, which is this version of Spider-Man, he doesn't succeed until he integrates both his the part of him that's like his police officer father and his uh, more subversive, rebellious uncle. I won't tell you too much more about it, uh, give too much away, but even the theme song of the musy, of the, (laughs) the musy, that's the music movie, Um, theme song, the music for the movie, Uh, even the theme song integrates parts of the theme music of his uncle and you can see this in integration this synthesis of his full self and that it's the key to unlocking his greatest potential and i grew up watching my mom not ever look into or realize why is she different why do regular things become such a challenge for her she never talked to her doctor she never she never leaned into the truth. She was never going to measure up trying to be like other people. And yet I saw her try to have a family and be a regular stay at home mom and be a regular employee and time after time, after time, deny the truth, repress her true self and fail and fail and fail and fail. And when I was 18, I knew I don't know what I'm going to succeed in, but I know it's going to be something that leans into my nature because I watched my mom drown trying to swim upstream. I'm going to go with the flow of this stream, the flow of this nature, and see where it takes me because it's got to be better than where she ended up. And I think that there's this picture this idea, what it looked like before I ran into and embraced and integrated and synthesized my ADHD into my practice. It reminds me of the uh, the Robin Hood with Kevin Costner. You know, the one where he he's Robin Hood with an American accent. Uh, <laughs> my dad loved that movie so much. And uh, there's this moment. This huge giant of a man, Little John, uh, see what they did there, um, is drowning in a river because he can't swim. And he's flailing, going down the river. I can't swim. And he's like, you know, choking underwater. And uh, Kevin Costner just walks out to him and says, stand up, stand up. Put your feet down. And he puts his feet down and realizes he can, he's like much taller than this river. And that's me in my inbox. Before I faced my shadow side, I was drowning in my creative practice, drowning in my admin, full of shame, drowning in my own shame, fighting upstream like my mom. And when I embraced that shadow side, I realized that I could stand up in this. I realized that with no shame, I would get the same amount done. And that would always be true. And I could, from that vantage point, start making healthier decisions. From the vantage point of reality, you will never be able to actually make a difference in reality if you're hiding in fantasy. If you're hiding in subjectivity, if you're hiding under the warm blanket of delusion, you will never make any progress. And so like Joseph Wu, look into that shadow side, quit pretending like it's just going to go away and integrate it into your whole self. All right. Six things that my creative heroes taught me that changed my direction. I hope that one of these, you know, I like these list episodes where there's all this different stuff coming at you and maybe a handful really resonated, but I hope one of these is an idea and I might not be the hero, but I'm happy to be your guide in this process. And I hope that one of these ideas changed your path today. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Yoni Wolf for our theme music. Thanks to Alex Sugg for our soundtrack. Thanks to Chris Graham of Chris Graham Mastering for audio assistance. Thanks to all of you for tuning in week after week. And until we speak again, stay pepped up.